Hello and welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast and this is number 67 and it's also the last one in January. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter and first of all there are some changes coming to the podcast. Nothing major, well not in terms of content, it's just that the podcast is moving to Wednesdays so there will, just like bosses, be another one along very soon. If you really like the podcast being on Friday, well, the easy solution to that is to just ignore it on Wednesday and listen on a Friday instead. And I didn't say to ignore it completely, please. Last week, I wasn't able to bring you any of the interviews from Sijep in Rimini because of some technical difficulties, but I do have one for you this week. For some inexplicable reason and more technical difficulties, two of the interviews I did at the event have completely vanished. It's quite frustrating and I'm not really sure what I can do about it, especially for future events. But I do have some and I'll let you know what we have on the show for you this week. Actually, before I start on that, I was also asked during the week about the Gelato World Cup at CJEP, in that I mentioned it in last week's podcast, but not who won. Well, it was the home team of Italy, and it didn't even have to go to a penalty shootout. Because I was at an event, and so was our US reporter Beth Newhart, we're going to have one interview from SIGEP, and that's an overview of the event, with Flavia Morelli, the group brand manager, food and beverage division of the Italian Exhibition Group, which runs the show. And we will also have one of Beth's interviews from the Winter Fancy Food Show in San Francisco, and that was with Sarah Barrow, Director of Communications and Community Affairs at HP Hood, about Planet Oat which isn't anything to do with the Star Trek episode. I also had a great chat about camel milk products in Australia with the CEO of Summerland Camels in Queensland, and that's Jeff Flood. That one's quite long, but very interesting. True to form, we actually talked for about an hour, and I was not one bit jealous of the fact that the weather there was fantastic. But in some kind of sweet revenge, Jeff is headed to the UK next week to promote the products, and so he will have to endure some of the rotten weather here as well. Although maybe he'll bring it with him and London will be fine next week. Of course, we also have our weekly look at what's happening in the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone's Dublin office. Needless to say, it's been a wet and windy week here, so much so that ferries have been cancelled again from the islands to the mainland. On the bright side, any more rain and I may have a lakefront property. The negative part of that is that it would be completely inaccessible. Anyway, rain-free Rimini is now a distant memory and next week we will bring you a couple more interviews from Rimini and from the Winter Fancy Food Show. And last week Beth was at another event, this time the International Dairy Foods Association Conference in Arizona. So we're swamped with interviews right now and it's great. But more on what to expect next week at the end of the show. This week I was busily booking my trip to the Netherlands, where hopefully I will be travelling around the country in March in a clockwise direction from Amsterdam, and doing around 10 interviews on various aspects of the Dutch dairy industry, assuming that I'm allowed into the country, as today is the day that the UK leaves the EU. And that's all I'll say on that. And so let's take a look at this week's news. And there was a lot. There's a new CEO for Moolah Milk and Ingredients in the UK. A new UK government report recommended people reduce their dairy intake by 20% to help the planet. That went down well with Dairy UK. 
Beth did a summary of some of the new products at the Winter Fancy Food Show, and we had an article on a new dairy engineering qualification in the UK. The Dutch dairy cooperative Friesland Campina is getting rid of plastic straws on all of the products that have them by 2021. The websites cheeseblock.com and cheeseblocks.com are up for sale. And we had two articles about Danone North America. The first is that it has joined forces with the U.S. National Fish and Wildlife Foundation on a shared commitment to regenerative agriculture. And along similar lines, it has also partnered with Replant Capital on some other environmental issues. The USMCA trade deal has been signed into law in the U.S. Now it's just that Canada has to approve it for it to come into effect. Maybe Canada will wait until there's no snow and the hockey season is over, which might be a while. And that's probably not even half of the articles that we had this week, so head on over to dairyreporter.com and check them all out. Obviously don't head to dairyreporter.com right now if you're driving or listening to this podcast while operating heavy machinery, or probably even light machinery. So, let's get the show underway. First, we'll take a look at the CJEP event that I was at in Rimini recently, which includes coffee, bakery, chocolate, and of course, gelato. And while I was at the event, I had the chance to get a bit of an overview from Flavia Morelli, who is the group brand manager of the food and beverage division for the Italian Exhibition Group. So if you can just tell me a little bit about the history of um, of the Italian Exhibition Group and also how CJEP fits in with that. Italian Exhibition Group is one of the leading uh, companies in Italy for the organization of uh, professional trade shows and congresses. And uh, we organize more than uh, 60 trade shows every year, specialized in uh, different industrial sectors. And one of the sectors is the food and beverage sectors, which is very important for um, the Italian economy. And I am um, responsible of the portfolio trade shows dedicated to the food and beverage sector. And uh, we organize uh, several shows within uh, the food and beverage. And one of these shows is called CJEP. CJEP uh, has a wonderful story. We have reached the um, 41st um, edition. And so we started in uh, 1980 and we launched it as a B2B event dedicated to the gelato and pasta sectors. Because as you know, Italy is uh, certainly the leading country for the production of uh, artisanal gelato. And uh, of course it's uh, the leading country for the production of machines and the products, raw materials, semi-finished products for the production of artisanal gelato. And as a fair organizer, we have seen the wonderful explosion, development of this sector all around the world. And this certainly, and we are proud, we are very proud of this, certainly CJEP was a wonderful business instrument for Italian companies and not only to spread out everywhere in the world the gelato. And gelato has really changed as well over the years. Now we have lactose-free and the plant-based vegan gelato. It's, it's really, over those 40 years, there must have been many changes. Absolutely. And we, are seen, we have seen that CJEP is really a reflection of what in the market has been changing along the decades. And uh, also the evolution and the changing in uh, the consumer needs. Now consumers, when they go uh, to eat out, uh, and so in uh, the automobile market, uh, they have new values. So they want to do an experience. 
they want uh, a healthy food, a natural food and a good food because it must be a very tasty food and gelato is fantastic in this way because gelato respects all these values and the companies has followed the change of the consumers in these years and so you can find every kind of gelato corresponding to the needs of the consumers of nowadays so for example lactose free vegan uh, superfood uh, and everything and uh, here in Sijet every year in January in Rimini in our expo center we have the explosion of the best and the newest uh, production in terms of uh, uh, machines equipment and materials and here people come from all over the world, not only from Europe, but also overseas, in order to be updated on the newest products. And some of the, not just the visitors, the companies as well, I've seen companies from China and from Eastern Europe and, and Brazil. Yes, exactly. And in fact, we have uh, more or less uh, 1,250 exhibiting companies, and 20% uh, of them are coming from abroad, from 30 different countries, not only European. The first are certain European countries, for example, German companies or Spanish or French companies, but also overseas from the Southeast and Americas. And talking about the visitors, uh, we are expecting more than 200,000 visitors and 20% uh, of them coming from abroad. And uh, the first countries are uh, Germany, Spain, but also other countries like United States, Canada, Canada, South American countries are increasing because gelato shops are increasing in numbers. So just think that uh, all over the world we can count uh, 100,000 gelato shops. Well, uh, 39,000 of them are in Italy and more or less 10,000 are in Germany. But we have seen that in the United States, in other um, South American countries and in the Southeast, gelato is booming and also in the Middle East, for example, because as I said, gelato is good, gelato is healthy, it's sweet, it's tasty and it, I, I always say that, I think that uh, eating a good gelato makes you happy. And the, the other thing as well that I've noticed is a lot of, uh, of, of this kind of event is all booths but there's all sorts of other things going on as well like there's uh, demonstrations and there's the the gelato world cup and there's so many other things going on yes cgb is certainly a wonderful opportunity in order to match uh, uh, offer and demand but uh, not only business meetings between exhibitors and professional visitors but we every year we enrich uh, the expo with events uh, with talks about innovation and trends uh, what's going on on market about economics data uh, with competition uh, show cooking and uh, every every two years every two editions of CJ we organize uh, the most famous uh, gelato uh, championship and this edition we host um, 11 teams coming uh, uh, from all over the world we have of course uh, the Italian team but we have uh, teams also overseas and they compete during the days of CJP and we will celebrate the best team for the production of gelato in different categories not only the gelato in cups for example but also the um, uh, gelato served in the restaurants because gelato can be paired also with other kind of food in restaurants this is a very booming trend now also not only in Italy and Europe but also in other overseas countries
Next, we head over to San Francisco for the Winter Fancy Food Show, the largest specialty food and beverage show on the West Coast. The summer version takes place in June in New York City. But at the winter event, Beth Newhart caught up with Sarah Barrow, Director of Communications and Community Affairs at HP Hood, to talk about Planet Oat and the addition of ice cream alternatives to the company's portfolio. Today we are introducing our oat milk-based frozen dessert. We have six flavors in total, and they'll be on shelves in February. So that's really our newest innovation, following up on the introduction of the oat milk last year. Is this the first product outside of milk, outside of a beverage? Yes. So this is the first true innovation we have from the Planet Oat line. And why did you guys choose to do ice cream first? I think that's where we really saw the biggest consumer need. We know a lot of people who are looking to be plant-based have a lot of beverage options at this moment, but there aren't necessarily frozen desserts that are delivering on that true ice cream mouthfeel. So we knew that we could really mimic dairy ice cream, and we think we did a pretty good job. So we're excited to see where it goes. How many flavors are there? There are six. Vanilla, chocolate, coffee swirl, chocolate peanut butter, cookies and cream, and blueberry oat crumble. So how long did you take to develop the living product? It's been probably about a year. Really, as soon as we introduced Planet Out, we started work on what could be next. <laughs> so this is the result of that. There's a lot, obviously, of non-dairy ice cream alternatives out there. Did you kind of study what was leading the market? Did you say, okay, we definitely want to do like a different texture than this or a different like sweetness level or anything like that? Yeah, so really the goal when we were developing it was to match the ice cream consistency. People love ice cream. And so many of the alternatives that are out there right now just don't measure up. They don't have the texture or they have sort of a, a ta- an off taste. So where oat milk is just such a neutral platform and really has that natural creaminess, we knew that we could get there and make a nice a frozen dessert that felt comparable to ice cream. Yeah. Are they in pints or are they in pints? They are available in pints and they'll be $4.99. Our heaviest distribution right now is in the Northeast, but we do have some pockets elsewhere. We have some out here on the West Coast. In general, the oatmeal market is heavier on the coast, so we expect that will be the biggest distribution and then fill in from there. But even in the Midwest, for oat milk, we're starting to see some really nice pickups in, in terms of volume, so it is growing. Um, is that for the ice cream or for the milk? For the oat milk. I have found, even here, is just educating the retailer and what the consumer wants. Right. And it's just you know, getting them to try it, and they're like, oh, this is actually really good. It's like, right. well, yeah, it is really good, and right. consumers love it, so let's try to, yeah. to bring it in. So are you working on distribution in the Midwest, and what can we expect from that? Or, like, what's the timeline on that? Yeah, definitely still working to fill in the distribution holes that we have in the Midwest, to your point. Keep building on the coast, start getting ice cream to pick up, yeah. and we are also available through Amazon. Yeah, so for the milk varieties, has there been anything new? Are you doing any different sizes or anything like that? No, we're just really focused on growing the business. The original and the vanilla have really been the fastest movers. Mm -hmm. They also have the largest distribution. Interestingly, the extra creamy, while it has a smaller distribution, has seen some really big gains. People seem to love that. Yeah, so I assume the reception has been pretty good on on the ice cream. Yeah. Yeah, the chocolate peanut butter has been by far the crowd favorite here. Yeah. Should we anticipate that 
the excitement and the momentum in the oat-based alternative category will continue, or do you think it's kind of like a fad that might be like passing out or no? I don't. We don't see it as a fad. And for us, it's really as more consumers are looking to go plant-based, they're trying out all their options, and I think more and more are realizing that oat does have the texture and the taste that meets their whole family's need. It's not just you know this milk for mom, this milk for kids. It's just something that can appeal to everyone. So yeah. we see oat continuing to grow. Over the last few years, we've covered camel milk quite a lot, whether it's in the Middle East or some of the scientific papers on the subject. Well, next week, Jeff Flood, the CEO of Summerland Camels, will be in the UK to promote the company's products to potential retailers. And we had a great chat about everything about camels, from their introduction to Australia to the products the company produces. The actual company is called the Australian Wild Camel Corporation, and we incorporate, well, we've only been running for about of four and a half years. Our brand is Summerland, and Summerland is actually the name of the property that we're on with our with our camel dairy. And we're, we're the largest camel dairy in Australia by a long way. We represent about 75% of the camel industry in Australia in uh, one property, and we're probably the third or fourth largest camel dairy in the world. So we're not small, but we're not, you know, we're not setting out to be the biggest either. We're just, the whole aim was to establish a commercial camel operation to produce the highest quality milk in the world at the lowest possible cost and take that milk through and all of the milk's incredible health benefits through and preserve those benefits through into products that actually help people solve their health challenges. So we're talking about skin conditions, gut conditions, diabetes, and that's how we got the idea in the first place. So my background... Uh, when I left school, I did biochemistry, physiology as a double major at the University of Queensland and then went off and played rugby for a while and then, and then came back and uh, studied nuclear medicine and then did physiotherapy and then I did my master's of science and I did my sports specialty and I did some other research overseas and some other um, study. And my expertise is epigenetics, so expression of your genetic, or your DNA, your genetic code, your, your innate immune system and your biome, so the the things that live on you and in you, all those bacteria, those good bacteria and bad bacteria, and how they all interact with your nutrition to make you well or unwell. So 17 years ago, I had a chain of physiotherapy practices in uh, Sydney, but in the end, I actually wasn't doing any physio. Um, other specialists and doctors and, and practitioners would refer me patients that were not responding to treatment for whatever their condition, inflammatory conditions, bowel conditions, respiratory, all sorts of things. And I I had a bit of a knack at, at solving the kind of unsolvable cases. And it was around that time I had this beautiful baby boy, you know, my first child, this son, and he had terrible eczema. And there was nothing we could do to shift it, whether it was a natural approach or a traditional pharmaceutical medical approach. We really just couldn't budge this eczema. And I had a few patients at the time that had multiple autoimmune disorders overlapping and they were really challenging. And I was doing a review of some medical research and I came across this work out of Israel where a guy was publishing research suggesting that he was having great success with camel milk treating autistic children and children with eczema. I initially thought, oh, that's got to be rubbish. How can a 
strange animal's milk treat these, you know, these very complicated problems, especially something like autism, which is a, a really complicated gut-brain disorder. And, and I heard myself in my mind and I thought, wow, how arrogant is that? You don't know anything about camels, Jeff, and here you are criticising this, this guy's research. So I set my mind, I said, right, if I'm going to debate with this guy or have a chat with him, I'm going to have to become an expert in camels, in camel milk, so I can understand it. And so I went off and read all the animal, vet science, food science, medical science, anything I could find on camels and camel milk. And by the time I'd finished, I'd realised that he was right. Camel milk was showing signs of improving all sorts of gut-brain conditions, not just autism, but also anxiety and depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, inflammatory bowel conditions like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and irritable bowel, terrible conditions were having great success with camel milk, type 1 and type 2 diabetes, in fact, the best research is on diabetes, um, inflammatory skin conditions, psoriasis, eczema, um, asthma, autoimmune disorders, so I said, right, that's what I need. I need some of this camel milk for my son and for these patients of mine. And whether it helps a little bit or a lot, it doesn't really matter. If, if anyone's suffering, you want to just, you want to help them as best as you can. So I, I set myself to go off and get some camel milk. Now we have camels in Australia. Surely somebody out there is milking camels. But uh, Jim, 17 years ago, nobody was milking camels in Australia. And in fact, there were no camel berries in the world. The only place I could get camel milk was from the Mongolians or the Bedouins. All these people who'd been milking camels traditionally for over 7,000 years, but no one had a commercial camel dairy. And I thought, right, that's what I need to do. I need to start a camel dairy so people can have access to this milk. So as I said, it doesn't matter if it helps a little bit or a lot. When you're really suffering, you, if it's something can help, you just want to be able to help that person. That's what I... That's what my business is about. So I sold my practices to a public company and did strategic advisory work all over the world, but always had my eyes set on starting this camel day. And I pulled a friend of mine in to help me. And yeah, about four and a half years ago, we, we started. For those who don't know, camels are wild in Australia, but not native to Australia, right? Correct. Like pretty much all of the animals here, like cattle, sheep, goats, horses, donkeys, pigs, chickens, these are all animals that were brought to Australia by the European settlers to establish farming operations like where they came from. But camels were brought to Australia for a different purpose. In the, about 1840, they were exploring Australia and they realised that the climate in this continent is very, very different to Europe. It is, of course, very similar to Africa and all through the Middle East and Central Asia. It's very harsh conditions. And the best animal for transport and for exploration was a camel. It can go up to six weeks without water, you know, four to six weeks without food. It can carry 600 kilograms each, perfectly suited to Australia and for that exploration. So they brought camels out. And between 1840 and about 19... Before the First World War, somewhere between kind of 12 to 20,000 camels were brought into Australia. We're not really sure how many because the ship's manifests weren't recorded as well as they could have been. And so we're not really sure how many, but they came from all over the world. So there were about 37 breeds of dromedary originally, and they all came to Australia. After the First World War, cars, trains, all sorts, tractors, all these different 
mechanised transport and farming systems replaced ox, horse, donkey and camels. And as a result, the camels weren't required as much for this transport. And so camels have a very IQ. They have an IQ higher than um, dogs and horses. And they say their IQ is about a six-year-old child's, seven-year-old child's IQ. So they're very clever and they form relationships with the cameleers. And the cameleers were not going to shoot their camels when they weren't needed anymore, so they let them go. And that's how we ended up with a, a wild or a feral camel herd in Australia. Today, there's probably only about half a million camels spread out over the whole continent, which is an insignificant number when you compare it to other feral animals. So, for example, Jim, feral pigs in Queensland, there's about 27 million feral pigs in Queensland. Um, the feral pigs are eating sea turtle eggs off the beaches of Queensland, so we don't have enough sea turtles in the oceans around the Great Barrier Reef. And as a result, there's more jellyfish in the ocean than there should be. Um, there's about 68 million feral cats just in the state of Queensland alone. They eat about one to two native animals each a week. So we're losing up to 140 million native animals a week in Queensland to feral cats. So camels are a very, very, very small um, number when you compare them to all of those animals. And the interesting thing, thing with camels is they were brought out to transport. Most of the settlers in Australia were from Europe. And so if, if, if you and I asked anybody in the UK or Europe, like, can you give me a list of farm animals? You know, they wouldn't have a camel on their list, would they? But if you ask people in North Africa or Africa generally or through all that Middle East and Central Asia and even parts of Northern Asia, ask them to list the number of farm animals, a camel would be on that list. So by default, because most of the settlers had no relationship to camels, camels right from the beginning were seen as something external to what we would normally do. So in Australia, they've never been embraced as a livestock animal, as, as part of a part of our agricultural economy or farming system. They're always seen as this foreign animal that, what do we do with it? In reality, it's actually the the animal that's best suited to the continent of Australia. And uh, they produce less methane or less climate emitting, um, causing gases to other livestock. Um, they have soft feet like Australian native animals and they don't damage the ecosystem. In fact, they're the only animal that eats all the noxious weeds that we've introduced to Australia. So we really should be embracing them, particularly in this continent of Australia, as a livestock animal and not not treating them as a pest as they have been today right and what's the story behind the coal what was the reason for that right from the beginning in australia so back in the 1800s you've got a, a an animal that's come out here for transport and they brought cameleers people to work with those camels and those people that came out were from all over the world where the camels were from commercially doing better than the ox cart drivers and the horse drivers who were also doing transport, who were mostly European in origin. So they were always lobbying the government to try and get rid of these camels. And the government in Australia knew, all the colonial government knew we needed camels desperately, so they never responded to it. But that negative perception of camels and the fact that they've never been seen as an agricultural animal, that whole kind of sentiment, negative sentiment towards camels started back then and it's kept going. What happens in a drought is all animals, of course, go in search of food and water. Now, camels have no problems in a drought with food because they typically don't eat the grasses. 
they, they eat bushes and, and leaves off the trees. They're more like a giraffe in that way. They don't really eat the grass. So in the middle of a drought, there's still plenty of bushes and things to eat. But they need water just like any other animal. They don't drink any more. They drink about the same amount as any other livestock animal. And so they go looking for water. And of course, in remote areas of Australia, the only places you can really find water are the indigenous communities or you know remote uh, rural communities. And so when the camels walk to these communities and look for water, the other animals are there are also cattle, donkeys, horses, most of them feral, and they're all looking for something to drink. Now the cattle, the horses, and the donkeys are not bright enough or intelligent enough to work out that it's safe to go into these communities to get a drink. And so they die of thirst outside of these communities. The camels, though, they'll stand and watch. And because they can go longer without water, after six weeks, they'll stand and watch the people in the community and they'll make a decision. They'll, they'll make a decision that it's probably worth the risk to go in and get a drink because these humans don't look like they're going to hurt us. And so they walk into the communities, not threatening anyone, not terrorising anyone. They're just looking for a drink of water. And, of course, they find the garden tap they can smell the water, so they pull the tap off the pipe and water gushes out, and that's how they get a drink. And so they're then, of course, they're then seen as terrorising communities and damaging, damaging houses and infrastructure. And they're a terrible pest that need to, they need to slaughter. And uh, different groups will take advantage of this, and they'll go to the government and say, oh, these camels are terrorising the local indigenous communities and the rural communities. They need to be shot. You know, the numbers are obviously out of control, they're dangerous, and uh, we want some money to go and shoot them. What's the government going to say, Jim? They can't say no, because if they don't say yes, then those people are also in the media complaining that the government doesn't do anything about these terrible problems. So the government says yes, and they get money, and they go off and slaughter camels. And you must understand, they're just shooting these animals from the helicopter. They're not, they're not clean shots. It's hard to shoot an animal from a moving helicopter a moving animal from a moving helicopter, and the animals are just left to rot on the ground, and there's nothing positive happening here. What I've been saying is I really invite all the different stakeholders in this discussion to get together and, and work to create, to bring those animals into our agricultural economy and work on ways to embrace. And climate change is really giving us something to consider, and we, we really need to think about, well, the way we've always always operated is probably not the way for tomorrow. So here's a, an opportunity right in front of us to say, stop slaughtering these poor animals that are such beautiful creatures that, that can offer so much to our agricultural economy. Just embrace them and bring them in. Bring them into the systems and, and start you know, exploring and changing the way we operate. And there's a huge market for these products globally. And, and if we look at it in a positive framework we, we all of a sudden create all these great outcomes and is the message getting out to people about this situation look we're getting there slowly the australian public in particular are really we've done a lot of work in the last four and a half years and we've really opened up people's minds to wow actually hang on for a sec camels don't spit they don't stink they're not grumpy these are beautiful animals that produce beautiful products that are really health-giving and uh, Australia's in a great position to be a positive part of that, that economy globally and start to value these animals and not slaughter them. And Australians are starting to wake up to that, but it's going to take time 
as with anything, time to get everyone on board and start to make some serious changes. But we're uh, we're doing our best. We're doing our absolute best. And I would guess one of the key strategies as well would also be to engage people in the positive aspects of the camel milk products that you're working with. Absolutely. And there is a massive and growing body of research globally on camel milk and its benefits to human health. We are contributing to that body of work, but there's about 50 plus universities globally that are all doing some kind of research on camel milk and how it has an impact on our health. There was a great paper out of a Welsh university about the the milk and its anti-inflammatory properties. And one of the findings they had is it's, that, that it's probably that anti-inflammatory property is one of the major drivers on why camel milk is good for type 2 diabetes and inflammatory skin conditions. And so whilst we're contributing to that body of research and knowledge, what we're also doing is we've done the work that hasn't been done, which is how do you raise the camel in a way that's humane and ethical, produce the highest quality milk with the highest possible health benefits, the lowest possible cost, and how do you preserve that milk's health benefits through into products like our skincare that actually helps people solve their terrible skin conditions or just helps people have healthy skin. I mean, by the time we got around to making our skincare, for example, my son, we tried everything every single possible thing for his skin. And my, my aim was not to make a product that was good for eczema. It was aimed to just make his skin well. And I thought if we just aim to help his skin express itself naturally and to be well, we'll then see you know, what impact will that have on the eczema or not. And believe it or not, within three days, he had none. And we've got thousands of case studies like that. And people have got similar results we get back from people with intractable inflammatory gut conditions and autoimmune disorders that are found after, you know, four to eight weeks of consuming the milk or taking some of the products we make from our specially produced powdered milk. They found, you know, the complete relief of their of their symptoms. So what we're really focused on is presenting the public with products that can help them by preserving the benefit of milk through those products. It's not as easy as you think because your traditional approaches to handling milk, the pasteurization process, the powdering process, completely destroys all the benefit of the camel milk. So there's some, we've had to develop absolutely unique and novel ways of um, meeting food safety standards, international and Australian food safety standards, but still preserve those, those actives in the milk through into the products. So that was my background really and, and, and it's been a challenge, but we've managed to achieve it and we're really happy with that. And you also mentioned earlier on about carbon footprint and the sustainability aspect of things, and that seems to be something that consumers are becoming increasingly aware of and concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, camels admit about 80% of the methane that other animals produce, about four-fifths. It can be as low as two-fifths. These are incredible animals that are perfectly suited to our climate change challenge future, if you like, particularly here in Australia, but also also globally, there are animals in certain jurisdictions, certain ecosystems that make more sense. Not in, not in every ecosystem. We also here on the property, we specialise in what's called regenerative farming or rotational grazing. And it's a sustainable form of livestock management systems where we over time build the soil carbon levels and we increase biodiversity where we operate as opposed to normal livestock operations that decrease biodiversity and create carbon emissions. So 
for every litre of milk that comes off our property and into different products, they're actually carbon negative. We've sequestered more carbon into the soil than has ever been emitted in the whole process of producing it. So we're very focused. We're, we, it's part of our values here and um, our mission as a, co- a company is not just to you know, create the best quality milk and, and take it through the products, but also do it in a way that's conscious of, of where we're at. You're coming over to the UK next week. What's the story behind that? Yeah, well, I'm really excited to come over. Actually. Um, the Queensland government put on a great initiative here where they pulled together about a half a dozen companies that they wanted to take to the UK and showcase their products to the UK market. And we went through a whole program and then they, um, the culmination of that is we go over next week, we'll be in the UK and we'll be meeting with lots and lots of different people uh, we're pitching our products to Sainsbury's. Um, I'm also hoping to set up some meetings with, you know, with others so that we can supply these markets to the people in the UK that would like them and, and need them. Hopefully, Jim, we get a thumbs up and, and we can have our products in the UK as well. And now we welcome back Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone, who's back in Dublin and who can give us an update on what's been happening in the global dairy markets this week. This week uh, was a week when the European market was largely influenced by global macro matters, namely, I guess, the the Chinese uh, Krona scare. Similar to a lot of other commodity markets where, you know, China is a big feature of the market, we've seen prices get hit. However, European butter, which is not so influenced by Asian demand, has remained stable. Feb-March remained flat around the 36.70 level. Quarter 2 was slightly more offered than last week at maybe 36.75. Quarter 3 at around the same 36.75 level. But then a slight premium for quarter 4 at 38.00. We continue to see trading interest from both sides really, uh, keeping the price action uh, pretty balanced. Skimmel powder, on the other hand, Obviously, having much more trade effects from China, you know, given the demand in that region, took a hit in line with the rest of the international skimmel powders and non-fat markets. Some buyers are looking at this as an opportunity to, to cover upside risk. Others are a bit more cautious. February, May, skimmel powder was down maybe about 30 euros to 26.20 level. Quarter two, down about 60 euros to 2600 level. And quarter three and quarter four, both down about 50 euros, trading 26.20 and 26.40 respectively. Huawei was about the same level of 8.20. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again earlier next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, just as a reminder, next week the podcast moves to Wednesdays. Although if you're a creature of habit, by all means download it on a Friday to listen to over the weekend and annoy the family. And on the show next week, we will have more from Sijet, more from the Fancy Food Show, something from the IDFA event, and something I must promote is a really fascinating interview with the founders of Turtle Tree Labs, a Singapore company that is working on the production of breast milk and cow milk from cells. And it's something that we covered, so you can read about it on the website beforehand. And so with that... I hope you have a great weekend. I think I'll spend mine building an ark for all the rain that we've had. And until next time, thanks for listening.